Well, hello, friends. Another chilly but a sunny morning. That's, that's great for us. We're uh, back in the book of Ruth this morning. Joshua judges Ruth. <clears throat> and a couple things we want to do before we get to Ruth's uh, Look at a question, and uh, when questions come in, uh, I try to look at them and think about how they're going to work in. Uh, this one I've got to apologize for, because I don't know where it came from, how it got on my desk. One day, it was just there, and part of the problem, it wasn't signed, which is fine, but... Uh, but it was on a post-it, a yellow post-it note. And the problem with yellow post-it notes is that when they get in among other papers, they post themselves to those other papers. And so I don't know if this was in something in my church mailbox and it got put in a pile and I never saw it or what, but one day it was there just by, by magic. And uh, so I don't know if this is uh, months old, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because I think it raises a, a worthwhile question to consider. So here's, here's the question. Dave, what can one do <clears throat> if they know that the path they feel called to is wrong? I'm confused. All right, so this, this is a fair enough uh, question. Uh, it's a bit more difficult because we don't have specifics. So let's, let's talk about it in general, and then we'll think about a specific illustration that might fit. So you notice the, the source of confusion here. In the yellow... The person says that they know something is wrong. Now, this is obviously a religious question, right? Uh, right and wrong, ultimately rooted back in our relationship to God and who he is and what he says. So, they know that something is wrong. And on the other hand, <clears throat> they feel called. And calling is also a religious idea. You know, God... God calls Abraham out of Babylon to go to the promised land. God calls Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. <clears throat> so, so calling is something that we experience in our lives. And, but, but here the issue is that, that what we know seems to run counter to what we're feeling called to. So let me just talk for a minute about sort of general overview of how I would resolve something like that in my own mind and heart and how we might help a person who's feeling this confusion. So a couple steps here. One, <clears throat> is to begin with the assumption that God does not contradict himself or lead us astray. 
Simple enough. And I think the person asking the question has the same assumption. That's, that's why they're confused, right? God doesn't contradict himself, but I'm sensing contradiction here in sorting out whatever the question was. Well, if God doesn't contradict himself or lead us astray, <clears throat> then, then we've got to assume that one side or the other, either what I think I know or what I'm feeling called to, one side or the other, I'm, you know, something's wrong there. And the other possibility is that both sides could be wrong. <clears throat> so I've, I've got to assa- uh, 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 examine both halves of this uh, confusion. So first, we might say, well, let's evaluate what we think we know. How do we know it? Well, maybe, maybe my conscience is telling me that a certain course of action is uh, right or wrong. In the Bible, conscience seems to be a, a, a facility or a faculty that we are created with, and and conscience, when it's functioning properly, speaks for God in our lives. <clears throat> now, it's not infallible, and conscience can be abused and distorted. So, you know, Paul can speak of those who have a seared conscience. It's, it's scarred. It's, not, it's, it's burnt. It's not functioning properly. But, but when it functions properly, it... It's a voice for God, speaking for God into our lives. So that would be one thing to consult. What does my conscience tell me about this confusing situation? Does it speak? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And then even more importantly, the question, well, what does God's word tell me? Does that address the conflict that I am feeling? And if I say yes to that, part of asking that question about God's word is the question, have I understood it correctly? Because I may have been told that it, the word of God says a certain thing and, you know, maybe I grew up with it. And, and I assumed that what people told me was right, but I've, I've never actually examined it myself. And so... So that's part of what we need to do, I think, in this sort of confusion. We need to evaluate what we know and try to clarify what God is saying. But then on the other side, we also have to evaluate this idea of calling. Calling is uh, something that tends to be pretty private. I mean, God calls me to some things that he doesn't call you and vice versa. And calling can be a complex thing to figure out. Uh, We ask questions like, well, how do I feel about this particular action or direction in my life? What do I I sense? Uh, What do circumstances say to me? Because we sometimes have that intuition that God is calling us to something because circumstances fall out in a way that we say, oh, uh, this looks like a direction I could move 
And I believe that God is the God of providence and he oversees things, so this, this may be where I should move. We, we might be evaluating our own abilities, our own gifts, and say, you know, this, this is who I am as a person. And I believe God is working in me according to my personality and so forth. And that gives me some direction. And, and we put that together with this sense that God is active in all of our lives. And so we evaluate our calling. Am I hearing correctly? Or is it possible that just as I may have misheard Scripture because other people told me what I should hear, it could be the same thing with, uh, with this idea of calling, right? We could have some very influential person in our life who says, this is what I think God wants you to do. <clears throat> you know, I think God has a wonderful plan for your life. <clears throat> and I think I know what it is. <clears throat> I've encountered people like that. I try not to be one of them. <clears throat> All right, so we've got to evaluate both sides. And, and that may should bring us to some clarity as we do that with a sense of humility and an openness to the Spirit of God and so forth. And along with that then, I'd say, well, check with other people. Because in these things, especially in the idea of calling, you know, it's, it's very personal, it's very subjective, and sometimes we get too close to our own issues. And it's just helpful to have someone to come alongside and... and share with them what we think we're hearing and see how they respond. And if you do that honestly, you can't just go to your friend who is going to affirm you in whatever they say, right? It's better to say, well, is there a a Christian I respect as someone who seems to be mature in their own spiritual life and their knowledge of the Word of God, uh, and I trust them, and I'd like to share this with them, right? So... There are ways to check, and overall, without knowing specific details, I'd say some kind of pattern like this is what I would encourage this person to follow. Now, I thought it might be, you know, it might be helpful <coughs> to think even in terms of a specific case. We don't know what this case is, so let's make up one. Make up one that has affected our congregation, even one that we talked about yesterday. Let's think about a situation where uh, a woman in our congregation is uh, desiring to know what her spiritual gifts are, and how God would want her to use those gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. But there's confusion, because uh, there's all sorts of ideas out there on this within the Christian church. And there's books and articles and podcasts out the wazoo So it's a great time for confusion. And uh, 
So I could see where, where a woman could be in this very situation. Or men thinking about trying to help our women and encourage them could have the same confusion. That is, on the one hand, what do I know? Or what do I think I know? What have I been told? What have I grown up with? What have I assumed? And, and if you grew up in a conservative church, what you very likely heard was uh, something along the line of uh, women need to be quiet. Uh, at least when they're around men. And and men need to lead. And that plays out in all different ways in particular churches, but you get the general drift. And, and that is built largely on a couple of very specific texts uh, that the Apostle Paul gives us. Uh, and they, they seem pretty straightforward. So on the one hand, many of us have grown up with that background. We say, well, there's, there's scripture for you, right? That's what we know. <clears throat> and that's what we've practiced. But of course, <clears throat> this whole question of the giftedness and calling of uh, women has seen an explosion of discussion in the last 50 years. I mean, tons and tons, and, and it's, it's from lots of people who love the Bible and are saying, uh, did we get it right? And, and in some cases, they've pointed out some other texts, even other texts of Paul, that lead to some uncertainty. So a text that growing up in a conservative church we never talked about was the text in Romans 16 where Paul is giving all his greetings to different people. And he says, uh, now greet Andronicus and Junia Andronicus is a man's name. Junia appears to be a woman's name. So greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, who are honored among the apostles. Among the apostles? What's that about? And, of course, in, you know, myriad debates, some people will say, well, uh, they have a good reputation with the apostles. It's one possibility. There's also a good likelihood that Paul is describing 
a husband and a wife as both apostles. <clears throat> Friends, I grew up in Bible-believing churches, but the churches I grew up in, uh, we didn't talk about that. In part because we translated it in a way that that would not be a woman's name. So these are complicated questions, aren't they? And I could easily see how a woman would be confused on the side of what do we know and on the other side, what's my calling? Because another thing that has, I think, become pretty clear in the last 50 years is that the four different lists of gifts of the Spirit are not gender-specific. That is, there's not certain gifts which are given to women and certain other gifts which are given to men. I can't see it in any of those four gifts or four lists. So what does that mean about God's calling of women to serve within the body? It means that it's a complicated question and one that we need to address with humility and love for one another. Where we've come to as a congregation is that we want to encourage our women to use their giftedness with greater frequency and opportunity within the body of Christ. That's where we are. We haven't settled the complexity of what Paul says uh, both, if you want to say it, his more positive and his more restrictive. We haven't solved that. But we're in this together, men and women, as a congregation, trying to listen to God's word and trying to listen to the leading of the Spirit. And we acknowledge it's a confusing time. Okay? So I'm not trying to give you a solution. I'm just trying to, well, I'm trying to tell you partly how I, I'm working through that issue. We're working through it as a church, and it's okay to be there, right? All right, well, enough of that. Let's go back and talk about Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, the widow, <clears throat> who comes back from Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is actually a foreigner, a Moabite. And uh, they come back, and uh, Ruth says, we need some food, I'm going to go glean. And she does, and she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. And we know what Ruth doesn't know. We know as listeners to the story that Boaz is a man of standing, and he's actually a relative to Naomi. Ruth doesn't know that. From her standpoint, it's just by chance uh, that she ends up in Boaz's field, but that proves to be very much the working and provision of God. So we're just this morning we're just going to try to finish up the end of the chapter here. So uh, remember at mealtime, uh, Boaz invites her to join the rest of the the crew, the, the reaping crew. 
At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over, and she got, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out a few stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. See, we know something as readers that we know more than either of the women in this story, right? Uh, Ruth knows the name of Boaz, uh, but she doesn't know who Boaz is. Naomi doesn't know the name of the man Ruth worked for, but she, she knows, once she hears the name, she knows. And the storyteller is so magnificent here because he, he has this dialogue going, and the very last word is Boaz. The most important key, in, but it's saved right till the end. That's grand storytelling. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord blessed him, Naomi said said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness. It's our word hesed that we sang about. He has not stopped showing his kindness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. She lived with her mother-in-law. So, great part of the story. Naomi revives. She's been in a deep sadness and depression. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She says to the women of Bethlehem, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord's hand has been turned against me. But now all of a sudden, Ruth comes back with unexpected bounty. Remember, Ruth went out to glean to pick up the little bits around the edge of the field or, or little grains that have fallen off the stalks. And, you know, it's subsistence stuff for the poor. But uh, we saw last week, debated point, verse, verse 7 in chapter 2, but we saw that, that a possible, and I think probably the right reconstruction, is that Ruth is 
a very gutsy woman. Even as a foreigner, she comes to the uh, foreman of the harvesting group, Boaz's field, and she says, uh, I'd like to glean, but I'd like to glean among the harvesters. Remember how it's laid out? The guys go through and cut and drop the bundles, and then the women come through and gather the handfuls into sheaves so they can be carried to the threshing floor. <clears throat> and way back here come the gleaners, picking up the little stuff. Ruth says, I want to glean, but I'd like to glean over here. Because there's more available. I think then when Boaz comes, he realizes who he is. He finds out who she is. The foreman says, this is her question. I think Boaz doesn't know quite what to do with the question. So he says, well, <clears throat> you know, follow along with my women here and don't go to other fields. Stay here. And if you need a drink of water, go, go get a drink of water. But I don't think he answers that question until it's lunchtime. And he and Ruth sit together and they talk. And, and it, but afterwards, he's made up his mind. He says, now, go and glean among the sheaves. And he even says, you know, he doesn't just want her to get more. He's going to make it happen. Because he says, guys, uh, you know, don't be too careful. Drop, drop a few extra straws. It's a wonderful story. <clears throat> so there's this unexpected bounty that Ruth comes back with. She, she comes back with an ephah. How big is an ephah? Don't know. I mean, look, look in the data and speculations. Anywhere from about 22 liters up to 35, 38 liters. <clears throat> Which means in, in weight, that can be anywhere from high 20s to maybe up to 50 pounds. So it's, it's a big range, right? But even if it's at the low end of that, that's not what a gleaner gets. See? And, and Naomi knows it as soon as, she, as soon as she sees it. What is going on? And her spirit begins to revive. And then she hears the story. And finally, Ruth in her naivete dumps out the name. Oh, by the way, the guy's name is Boaz. And, and when Naomi hears that, then her response is just, just wonderful. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his hesed to the living and the dead. See, she was, she was wondering about that. She was despairing of God's mercy and faithfulness. But suddenly... When she hears Boaz's name and she sees the unexpected bounty, for her, Hesed has returned. He has not stopped showing Hesed. Now there's a debate there. It's a bit ambiguous. Is she referring to Boaz or is she referring to the Lord? <clears throat> and I'm on the side of those who feel kind of obvious that that's the Lord she's referring to, especially because of the reference to the living and the dead. Now, 
Now, that's, that's interesting because it suggests to me that knowing who Boaz is and hearing that that's the field that Ruth has been taken to, that clicks for her and suddenly she sees possibilities that she hasn't been seeing. <clears throat> now, why does she see possibilities? Well, or, and how do we know that? Part of it is she says God has not stopped showing <clears throat> his hesed to the living, to me, to Ruth, and to the dead, Elimelech, and her sons that have been lost. Now, what can she mean by that? How is God showing hesed? And I think the answer to that is, as soon as she puts Boaz together with what's happening, she begins to see possibilities in her mind. And, and that's what we need to finish with here. Boaz is in the position of a guardian redeemer. Redeeming in the Bible is the idea of, of delivering something or someone who is in trouble. That's what redeemers do. God redeems Israel out of Egypt because Israel's in trouble. And so he brings them out. And there is this uh, position, if you will, or institution in Israel of the guardian redeemer. Uh, who is that? Well, it's, it's somebody who's a relative. The old translations would speak of a kinsman redeemer, right? You don't see that much anymore. You see this guardian idea, but, but kinsman is part of it. It's somebody that's connected to your family could be a very close relative, it could be more distant, as is the case with Boaz. But, but that's what Naomi knows about Boaz. He's a guardian redeemer. He's, he's family, and guardian redeemers have a number of responsibilities in the Old Testament. Uh, two of them seem to be very important for our, our future understanding of the book of Ruth. The first is the guardian redeemer is responsible to help preserve property. Uh, here's what Leviticus says. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. The idea is that God who apportioned through Joshua, apportioned the tribes, various territories, and, and then apportioned it in families, God has an interest in keeping that land with families. In part, so it, it's partly economic. It's so that certain powerful, wealthy people don't just keep gobbling up land. Right? This, later on, this would be one of the big objections to King Ahab. Remember how he stole the vineyard of Naboth? That's an abomination. God God wants to preserve the land in the families. So the guardian redeemer could do that. Here it says his nearest relative. Well, we find out that Boaz is not the nearest relative. But there's somebody else in line. They'll take care of that later in the story. So preserving property is one. And we're going to find out that Naomi has some property. And uh, 
So Boaz becomes important for that. The second thing of the guardian redeemer that's important is maintaining heritage. <clears throat> this is Deuteronomy. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother, her brother-in-law, shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now what's going on here, it seems, is again, God's concern to preserve family lines. Not just property, but lines of inheritance. And so the case of uh, a man who dies, leaves a widow, and they don't have a son yet, the law of the leveret, that's what it's called here, is brother-in-law stands in, marries the widow, and bears sons who are not, not to inherit his line, but to maintain the line of inheritance of his brother. Now, this exact case doesn't apply to Boaz, right? He's not a brother-in-law to Elimelech, but he's family, and he's a guardian redeemer, and evidently, this is where we don't have all the details, but evidently, this becomes part of the responsibility that Boaz, as a guardian redeemer, is going to assume. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But these two elements, preserving property, maintaining heritage, and Naomi knows this. And that's one of the reasons she's saying God has not forgotten his hesed toward the living and toward the dead because Elimelech needs an heir. So how's that going to happen? Where does that leave us? Well... The Lord has cared for the immediate needs of Ruth and Naomi through the generosity of Boaz. Ruth has, has gleaned. It's been good. Eight weeks. Harvest is over. Ruth is still living with Naomi. That's hopeful. But the harvest has ended and the story is stalled. We have a feeling Boaz is supposed to be the hero here. Come on, Boaz, step up to the plate, man. It's been eight weeks. You had lunch with her. And there's no, there's no indication there's any contact between Naomi and Boaz either. So what's going on? Why the delay? What's happening? And God doesn't explain himself. But we have an idea. As listeners from what has already taken place, we have an idea that Yahweh is in the neighborhood somewhere. And something's going to happen to resolve these issues. That's what we'll look at next week. All right. Well, I'm supposed to lead us in communion.